tonight. Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. Welcome those of you who are joining us uh, a little bit later today, either, either in person or online. Now, for those of us who are, who are joining us, um, we, we basically, we just finished our sermon series, uh, Life in the Spirit. We finished it um, last week, and we were just preaching through Romans. Um, but unfortunately, there were, there were a couple of topics, there were a couple of passages that I never really got an opportunity to preach on uh, from Romans. And I just thought, um, you know, even though we kind of ended the, the series here, um, there's just certain things that have been on my mind that I, that I just wanted to share with you all. And one of those things that I've been thinking about for a while is that there's all these miraculous stories of how someone's life changes when they accept Christ, when they come into a relationship with Christ. And I think for me, that was something that I experienced too when I first accepted Christ. There was this initial rush of, of joy and peace in my life. You know, there, like I was, you know, all the way up here. But when I started to continue to live my life, it began to slow down. And before I knew it, that joy and that peace I experienced when I first gave my life to Christ, it suddenly kind of vanished. Uh, worries and anxieties began to cloud my mind again, and that sudden burst of life that I had in Christ just seemed to disappear. Has anyone ever felt like that before, or possibly even feel that today? It really sucks, right? Doesn't it? And I think, <laughs> and I think one of the ways that we can keep that fire alive in us is found in these two passages that we're going to read today. Uh, but before I begin, I, I just want to tell you a little story about St. Augustine. Now, St. Augustine, he's considered as one of the most important early church fathers since he wrote incredibly deep theology roughly like 1,600 years ago. But he also wrote some incredibly deep books on Christian spirituality that Christians today still read and study. But the thing is, Augustine, he, was, he wasn't originally a Christian. Like me, he, he, was, he wasn't an atheist, but he did, definitely didn't believe in the Christian God. And so in his youth, he basically sought after every single worldly passion you can ever imagine. He studied every single popular philosophy of his time. But despite all the pleasures of life, right, despite all this knowledge he, he built up here, there was still a deep emptiness in his soul, a deep emptiness in his heart that nothing could fill. Until one day, he heard the voice of a child, uh, basically come from literally nowhere, saying, take and read. And at first he thought it was just like kids, you know, running around or playing ball, but he realized, no, there was obviously no kids around him. And so he took that as a command from God. And so he searched, he quickly went and found the closest Bible or the closest scripture that he had. He opened it up literally to a random page, so whoop, and it fell straight onto Romans 13. And his eyes saw this verse. It said this, Rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Oh, sorry, I think that's, those, those might be the wrong slides. Sorry, we're on the sermon slides, yes. Yes, there we go. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And at that moment, Augustine's life was transformed and a fire for God started to grow in his heart. But like any fire, if you don't feed it, it dies, right? And so Augustine, he would spend a lot of time deeply devoted to prayer, to meditation on the scriptures. And the more he meditated and the more he prayed, the more the fire grew in him 
and his desire to seek God. And his, as his desire for God grew, his prayer and his scripture life deepened even more. And so he started this crazy cycle of reading and meditating and his desire for God increasing and feeding itself. But Augustine's hunger for God through the word and prayer wasn't the only way he developed that fire in his heart. Augustine understood that Christian life is not something that we do alone, but rather he deeply believed in the saying that iron sharpens iron. And so out of this, he, he developed a monastic community where believers would come together to read scripture together. Hey, just as we're doing today, they would pray together at dawn. They would mutually kindle each other's spiritual love for God. And all of this, right, all of this transformation came from one simple statement from Paul. To clothe ourselves with Christ rather than trying to gratify the desires of our flesh. That as we choose God over the flesh, only then will that fire in our hearts continue to grow. And for some of you, maybe that fire is strong and you want to continue to build it up, and I encourage you to continue to do that. But for others, maybe it might be smoldering embers at this moment. But no matter the case, when we choose God first, that fire will reignite in our hearts. And so with the story of Augustine in mind of choosing the spirit over the flesh, um, I want us to take a look at our passage today. It's just two simple verses. It's from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For, you live, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what exactly does it mean to live in the flesh? And I think what Paul thinks of living in the flesh is actually pretty different from what modern Christians think. Um, but what I think most of us, what most Christians think of as the flesh is they think of pretty outward stuff, whether it be the consumption of substances, whether it be cursing or watching things we probably should not watch, we commonly think of living in the flesh as these surface-level issues, right? Take, for example, someone who wants to quit an addiction, right? Whether they have an addiction with alcohol, drugs, their phone usage, pornography, gambling, cigarettes, whatever. What do most people normally try to do? They try to stop it at the surface level. They'll try to do cold turkey, right? You know, like, oh, I'll just, I'll just stop. I'll just stop on these surface-level addictions. But the issue is, if we only work on surface-level issues, then how come the relapse rates for addictions are so high? And the reason is, trying to solve the addiction at the surface level doesn't solve the deeper issue that caused the addiction to begin with. Uh, Paul Tillich, he's a Lutheran theologian and a philosopher, he once argued in his book, Dynamics of Faith, that everyone, whether they are religious or even an atheist, they have something called an ultimate concern. And the basic idea is that this ultimate concern is the single reason, it's the, it's the core of your being that moves you to do anything in your life, either consciously or subconsciously, right? It takes control of your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, every part of your being. Everyone has this one ultimate concern, this one thing that you'd be willing to sacrifice everything else for in order to provide this ultimate meaning into your life. 
And if we take any amount of time in critical self-reflection, we know that's true. During the pandemic, I, I was having a conversation with a friend who was going through some sort of like existential turmoil. He thinks is like his life is like, you know, like why am I even alive sort of deal. He's roughly around my age, and you know, the thing is he makes pretty good money. He has a pretty nice apartment, um, but nonetheless, he had this problem in his heart where he, you know, had this profound emptiness. And it's bizarre, right? He has a steady job, he has a pretty nice apartment, he's more well-traveled than all of our friend group combined. You'd think this guy is probably one of the most happiest dudes in the world. But yet, why did he feel this emptiness inside him? And so we literally did this exercise of figuring out his ultimate concern, where we would start with some surface-level concerns, and then we'd dig deeper. And so I asked him, why do you work besides just for survival, right? And he said, well, you know, it allows me to get a pretty decent apartment, allows me to afford some weekend getaways or, or longer vacations. I said, okay, so why is a decent apartment or a weekend getaway important for you? And he says, well, you know, I get to invite friends over to my apartment and I can experience new places, I can post photos onto social media. And the moment he finished that sentence, you could literally see that he, he took the next step. You could literally see his eyes open, like, the, like a light bulb like turned on because he knew exactly what I was about to ask next. I was about to ask him, well, why is that important for you? And what he immediately understood was that his ultimate concern in life was external validation. He believed that if he made other people happy, or if other people liked him, then he would be happy. And so his joy in life was tied directly to what other people thought of him. His quote-unquote, God, was the approval of others, and he would do anything to make people think highly of him. And it's funny that all of this began, all of this emptiness started to crop up just as the pandemic happened. And it wasn't the fact that he couldn't see his friends, it wasn't the fact that he couldn't go out to travel that made him feel empty, but it was the fact that he was unable to receive any form of external validation. There's no one to like his posts no one to comment on his new furniture, no one to please, no one to make happy. And so as long as we put something that is temporary, as long as we put something that is transient or finite as our ultimate concern, it will always lead to profound suffering. We won't always get the approval of others, we won't always be the most beautiful, we won't always be the top in, a, top in our class or the top in our workplace, and what scripture really calls this is he calls, the scripture calls all of this idolatry. And what idolatry really is, is unbelief. Unbelief is where we walk away from God, either willingly or we get trapped in the lie that the pleasures of this world or, or you know, the things that this world offers are more satisfactory than a relationship with our infinite God who does not change. And the thing is, when we are trapped in this unbelief, when we're trapped in this idolatry, or, or as Paul says here, living in the flesh, I think we become a lot like that woman in the well, right, in the New Testament. She has multiple husbands, but never satisfied. She drinks from the water from the well, but her thirst is never quenched. She's on this never-ending cycle of finding temporary satisfaction before returning back to soul-crushing emptiness. 
maybe for some of you, the issue might not be external validation like my friend, but I am 100% positive that all of us have experienced the pain and suffering that arises when we place something that is temporary as your ultimate concern. We all have a well that we keep turning back to. And when we look into that well, we find it completely empty, no water left. And so what do we do? Do we, do we dig another well? Well, that's actually what most people do. They jump from one idolatry to, an, to the next, and they continue this for, for basically their entire lives, and they can never shake off this, this feeling of emptiness. So what's the solution? What do we do about this? And the solution to all of this is found through the death and resurrection of Christ. However, before we can turn to God to find satisfaction, God has to solve a problem on his end. Because of the sin that is in our hearts, we are actually eternally separate from God because he is perfectly holy and, quite frankly, we are not. And normally when I say this, it doesn't really click with people because it's a little too abstract. Like, what do you mean God is too holy? Why can't he just accept me? Well, I'll give you an example, right? Imagine for a moment, you just bought this brilliant, brilliant white shirt. You know, you're out eating with your friends and family, and, and as you're eating, you notice that you accidentally spilled you know, some salsa over your shirt. You know, you look at that picture and you're already disgusted, right? You, you spilled some salsa on your shirt. There's this huge, disgusting red blotch or orange blotch all over your clean white shirt. So what do you do? What do you do about this? Well, there's two things you can do. Well, first, you either throw out the shirt and buy a new one, or B, you know, you go home, you use bleach or OxyClean or whatever, and you remove that stain so that you can wear the shirt again. And in a similar way, it's the same with us and God. God's standard is that this shirt needs to be perfectly white. No amount of stain is acceptable. And so when we have sin in our lives, when God looks into our hearts, it's not the whiteness that God sees, it's not the goodness in our lives that God sees, since that's already what's expected of us, but rather it is the sin that stands out, right? No one goes out of their house with a stained shirt saying, oh, you know, oh, well, it, you know, it's, it's 95% white, you know, 5% of stain is acceptable, right? My, my shirt gets an A plus in whiteness, 95% white, right? No one says that. And so when God looks at us, he also has two options. He can either destroy us or out of his love, he can wash us clean again. And what the gospel message tells us is that in order to wash us of our sins, in order to make us clean again, Jesus had to pay the penalty for our sins. Romans 6.23, it tells us what? That the wages of sin is death, that we deserve to die. And if that is true, then it is only through Jesus' death, it's only through Christ's death and through his blood that we can be made presentable to God once again. He paid the price that we could not so that a restored relationship with God can once again be made possible. But the thing is, Christ's death is only half the story, right? The resurrection of Christ is proof that God has defeated sin, that God has defeated death. No person in human history has ever come from literally complete death to life. And so if Christ has defeated death, has defeated sin, then we who belong to Christ... We share in that power. 
We share in his victory over the flesh. We share in the victory over being conquerors of, that, of the things that have enslaved us in the past. And so you see, through Christ's resurrection, the promise for us is that depression, anxiety, restlessness, suffering, death, these awful things, these are not the final things in our lives. You see, the entire world, apart from Christ, they are headed, obviously, in one direction, to death. And everyone, all of us, we, we feel it coming closer and closer day by day. We can't move as fast as we used to. Our joints become, you know, a little more painful than usual. Um, overcoming a common cold takes longer. We have less energy. Everyone will face this death. But the reason that we, as Christians, why we have hope, is that we realize that though we die in this world, we will be entirely resurrected into an everlasting life. And we know this because Christ himself demonstrated it to us 2,000 years ago through his own resurrection, through his own life. And the wonderful thing about, Christ, uh, about Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection is that even before we get to heaven, while we are still here on earth, we are given a new source of life. We're given a new source of power and direction. We are given the Holy Spirit. And earlier, we, we spoke about what happens when we put something that is finite, right? Whether it's our job, you know, our family, whatever. Uh, something finite as our ultimate concern, right? It obviously leads to disappointment. It leads to suffering. But what if we make God our ultimate concern? Rather than trying to obtain joy through our own strength, what if it was given to us instead? And if we take a moment to think of the fruits of the Spirit, right, that are promised to us, right, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we realize that these are things that we've been really trying to acquire through our own strength, but mostly unsuccessfully. We've been trying to find joy. We've been trying to find love unsuccessfully over and over again. We've been trying to be good, and we fail every single time. But the truth of the gospel is this. We can't truly develop these fruits through our own strength, right? How can a dying and poisoned tree create good fruit? And we are that dying and poisoned tree. And so apart from God, that is who we are. We are decaying. We are poisoned. But when we accept God, when we allow the Holy Spirit to now live in us, it's not our own fruits that we are developing, but rather the Holy Spirit develops it within us. We are given all these fruits, and we can, for the first time, experience, right, joy, peace, and love, and all the other fruits. Now, of course, does that mean that life is always happy, right, Pastor Brian? Are you always happy? Am I, am I always never stressed? Well, no, of course not, right? But the true secret is that when you really live by the Spirit, you're joyful, even when you are unhappy. Somehow you experience peace while stressed. As Paul says in Philippians 4, he says this, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Not something that I develop, but through the Holy Spirit who gives me strength. But if this is true, 
then how come some Christians have never experienced this? And this is where we come back to our passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, you will suffer. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul is calling all of us to make an active decision, an active choice to live according to God's spirit, right? He actually says it all throughout his epistles, right? Ephesians 4, he calls us to what? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to now be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Or in 2 Corinthians, he also says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Paul, he probably talks about this, you know, 10 other times in, in all of his other epistles. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Let us take just a modicum of time, just a bit of time, and let us actually identify in what ways we still live. Are we living in the past? Are we living in this old creation? Are we living in a worldly manner? I encourage you to, to dig deep to really find out what this ultimate concern is in your life. For some of us, your ultimate concern is truly God. And you guys know exactly what I mean when I talk about the fruits of the Spirit being given to you or being authentically joyful even during difficult times. But for those of you who might have other things, as your ultimate concern. I admit, it's really scary to give those things up, isn't it? I've been there. I know exactly what it feels like, right? You, you spent your entire, your whole life nurturing this concern. Your whole identity, your whole self is built on this one concern. And so to get rid of it, it really feels like you're destroying a part of yourself or even your whole self. And if this is how you feel, I want to encourage you to ask yourself two questions. The first question is, how has this ultimate concern been serving you? Does it actually work? Does it actually generate within you that lasting joy and peace that I talk about? Or are you constantly bouncing between happiness, sadness, happiness, and sadness? And the second question is, what would life be like if you were freed from this concern? What would happen if you were freed from your desire for approval, from wealth, from pleasure, from work, or even from security? What would your life look like? How much more free would you be? Brothers and sisters, you are all born again as a new creation in Christ. Let us put away the old and literally put on our new lives in Christ. Amen? So why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, um, before we come to you today, let us confess. Um, let us confess the fact that we have not placed you in the, in the rightful place in our lives. If, if we're honest about ourselves, there are so many more things we think are more important than you. We constantly live in the flesh. We constantly think in the flesh. We constantly act out our lives in the flesh. And then we wonder why there's suffering inside of us. 
it's no surprise. Lord, we place something that is finite in a hole that can only be filled with you. But Lord, we thank you that even though we as believers walk away from you constantly, you have died for that too. You have died for our sin of unbelief. And we thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that you still think we are worthy enough to be the temple of your spirit, that you are joyful, that you even delight to dwell in our hearts, even though we try to push you out and replace you with other things. Lord, let us turn to you. Let us make you our ultimate concern. Let us put to death all the things that we try to make more important than you. Father, we, we confess those things have not served us well. It has not produced within us joy. It has not produced within us peace. And so let us turn to you knowing that the promise of a new life can be experienced today, right this moment, if we only give our lives completely to you. Father, we love you and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.